Good morning, friends. Uh, so this is a, a challenging gospel reading for us to unpack today. Um, and uh, as I, I think about this, I'm reminded of, uh, of an encounter I had with my maternal grandmother. So my maternal grandmother was known for her quick tongue, not so much for rolling out pithy one-liners that were witty or charming. She wasn't exactly that kind of grandma, but rather for being painfully direct and to the point. I remember coming home from college one year and having dinner with her and my grandpa at my mom's condo. I was a Bible and theology major, and I can imagine that I was sharing with them something about how difficult it was to interpret the Bible and how I was learning that to read the Bible faithfully requires care and humility and deep listening, or at least that's what I like to imagine that I was saying. Well, over a, a spoonful of, of fruit salad, she spat out something to the effect of, well, people can make the Bible say anything they want, can't they? And I was really deflated, uh, and, and, but I felt that my grandma had a, a good point. Um, the Bible is this big, complicated collection of poems and prophecies and histories uh, and stories and letters written over, uh, over a 1,500-year period by people who wrote in at least three different languages from places all over the Middle East and parts of the Mediterranean, all of whom were trying to put into words what it was like to live in relationship with the God of the universe within the complexities of day-to-day -day normal human life. In a careless or a worse in manipulative hands, the Bible can be made to say things that are simply wrong. And I'm sure many of us can think about times in our lives when someone taught us that this or that thing was what the Bible teaches, only to learn later that it really had nothing to do with that big story of God's creative and sustaining and redeeming love of, of God's creation, which is the top level storyline of scripture from cover to cover. When we hear that people can make the Bible say anything that they want, it can erode our confidence in scripture, make us question the value of the Bible in the first place. Or worst of all, it can keep us from hearing that powerful message of God's love that the Bible is trying to say to all of us and to all the world. So let's take, for example, how easily we can misread the story from today's gospel. The story that Denise just read for us is referred to as the cleansing of the temple. It's a story told in all four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke place it chronologically, right before the Last Supper of Jesus, almost as if to say that this big disturbance might be the last straw that eventually led to Jesus's arrest. John, however, places this theologically at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in order to help us use this story as a clue for understanding who Jesus is and what it means for Christians to meet with, pray to, and worship God through Jesus. In our gospel this morning, Jesus has just walked down from Galilee to Jerusalem to worship and celebrate the feast of the Passover. The Passover was the high point in the Jewish year, commemorating God's deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Jews from all over the ancient world would have joyfully made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to meet with God and one another and to offer prayers and to celebrate and worship God in the temple. Now, you'll recall from a couple of weeks ago that I talked about how a big part of ancient religious life was animal sacrifice and how ancient priests had a lot in common with modern day butchers and barbecue pit masters. Now, this was definitely a key element of ancient Passover too. 
For the Passover, Jewish pilgrims from all over the world would have come to Jerusalem to make an animal sacrifice at the temple. The merchants and the money changers in the temple that Jesus kicks out played an important role in helping these pilgrims to worship God. If you are traveling to Jerusalem from a distance, say even just as far away as Galilee, a couple of days walk, you may not necessarily bring with you the animal that you intended to sacrifice at the temple. Instead, you'd probably want to just purchase one after you arrived, since it would save you from having to travel with a basket full of doves or a herd of small sheep. Similarly, if you traveled all the way from Greece or Ethiopia and needed to exchange your currency for something that could be spent in the temple, you'd need the services of a money changer to help you out. So as Jesus enters this melting pot of worship and commerce, he kicks over the tables, he pours out the coin purses, he chases out money changers and dove merchants with a handmade whip, and he starts yelling, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house into a marketplace. So if we end our reading here, if we, if we don't stop to think about this story in light of all the other things that we know about Jesus, if we don't pay attention to Jesus's interaction with the bystanders at the end of this passage, if we don't wonder why John put this story at the start of Jesus's ministry instead of the end, and if we don't imagine what it would have been like for John's original audience to hear this story, we could walk away with an incomplete and dangerous reading. And such an incomplete and dangerous reading could lead us to believe that if the cause is righteous enough, perhaps Jesus endorses a violent uprising. Well, this, in fact, is exactly the kind of dangerous and incomplete reading that motivated violence among Christians on both the left and the right this past year. As a mob that included several so-called Christian nationalists engaged in an armed insurrection in the U.S. Capitol building, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple was cited by some as a model of violent Christian protest, pushing over security cards, defacing public property, barging into senators' offices, all framed as a modern-day cleansing of the temple. Maybe my grandma was right. People really can make the Bible say anything that they want. So how do we make sense of this story in a way that is both faithful to what the Bible is saying and also speaks to us and our situation today? Well, when you find yourself reading the Bible, and I really do hope that you do find yourself reading the Bible from time to time, and you get a little stuck, there are four questions that can help you uh, seek clarity uh, as you wrestle with the text. The first is, how does this story relate to what we already know about the character and nature of God? The second is, am I reading this whole story or am I just focusing on a particular passage? The third is, is this story described anywhere else in the Bible to give it a, a second or a third or a fourth perspective? And then the last one is, what might this story have meant to its original audience? So let's try asking these four questions to the story of Jesus in the temple today. So when we read a story like we did today, we have to ask ourselves, does Jesus's life taken as a whole model violence? We know from the gospels that Jesus was certainly angry from time to time. And we also know that he wasn't at all afraid to stir things up. 
But when we look at the whole of his life, it's clear that he's not a zealot or a patriot or a revolutionary in the way that many people expected someone like the Messiah to be or wanted him to be. In his time, as in ours, people were looking for strong leaders who could come in and set things right, punish the abuse of power, and usher in a new social and political order. But contrast this with the last week of Jesus's life. Instead of storming into Jerusalem on a war horse, he rode in on the back of a donkey. Instead of sitting on the throne to rule, he was willingly crucified on a cross. The character of Jesus described throughout the gospels is one that subverts violence, but does not employ violence. So how do we understand what's going on in this particular episode in the life of Jesus? I think we can gain a clearer sense of what the story is about if we continue to read the verses that immediately follow. After Jesus puts down the whip, John offers us some helpful commentary from the crowd in verses 18 to 22. And I wanna read them here for you right now again. The Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John says here that the Jews ask for a sign. In Greek and in English, this is a really strange sentence. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense for them to ask, who gives you this authority? Or where do you get off kicking out the merchants? John uses the word sign here in a really intentional and theologically technical way. Throughout John's gospel, when Jesus does something important, it's referred to as a sign. A sign for John points to a deeper reality about God and the world that the ministry of Jesus through this sign is revealing. So while on the surface, the event seems to be about dove merchants and money changers, John is telling us that this story is pointing to something deeper. So what is the sign pointing to? John tells us that it's pointing to the temple of Jesus's body. So what on earth does that mean? Well, as I said earlier regarding the Passover, the temple was the place where you would go to meet with, pray to, and worship God. Now, of course, there were other places where a person could go to meet with, pray to, or worship God. Wherever communities of Jews existed in the ancient world, they would gather together in synagogues to meet God through the study of the Torah and to pray. These synagogues were often regarded and even structured as miniature temples, representatives or signs of that temple in Jerusalem, which itself was a representative or a sign of God's dwelling place on earth. Now, of course, everyone knew that God didn't just live in the temple or the synagogue, but these were powerful symbols that represented places of discrete overlap between where God lived in heaven and where humanity lived on earth. They were like thin places where humans and God could meet. And this is why John puts this story at the start of his gospel and not at the end. John isn't telling a chronological story of the life of Jesus. He's telling us a theological story about Jesus, specifically that, Jesus, that the Jesus who Christians worship 
is the same being as the God of the universe. He is God's word who has been with God from the beginning. And wherever Christian, Christians hear God's word, that's where Jesus is. And wherever Jesus is, that's where God's temple is. Jesus is the place where Christians can meet with, pray to, and worship God. Some scholars believe that John was written to a scattered Jewish Christian community who had a generation earlier fled Jerusalem after the city and the temple were destroyed by Rome in AD 70. This group of young Christians, probably second generation Christians, were trying to figure out how they could meet with, pray to, and worship God without the sacred space that had been the center of the spiritual universe of their people. As they remembered what they had learned from Jesus, and they gathered together to share meals and stories and prayers in his name, they began to realize that it wasn't just the former temple in Jerusalem that was the place where they could meet with God, but they found God present wherever they gathered as Christians is Christ's body, the body of Jesus, his church. This is the new temple. I've thought a lot about the experience of these early Christians this past year of pandemic. I think that we, like them, know something of the loss of a sacred space. While our churches weren't destroyed by the Romans like the temple was in Jerusalem in AD 70, we have lost access to the sacred spaces that were once the spots that we'd go to, to meet with, pray to, and worship God as a community. And like those early followers of Jesus, we have found that as a dispersed and distributed community, we can know that Jesus is present among us even when we are worshiping in our PJs from our sofa or preaching about him in a clergy shirt and sweatpants. So if we're looking for a way to make the story of Jesus' cleansing of the temple applicable to our life today, this is it. Jesus is telling us that these sacred spaces, whether our churches or the temple, are not the exclusive places that we can go to meet with, pray to, and worship God. Jesus is the temple, and wherever his followers gather around him, that's where God is found. And whether you're in your living room, or your car, or in the buildings of our churches, God's temple is there, and it's become the whole earth. Amen. Amen.